Hey, my name is Brian Golden. I'm the lead pastor of Centerpoint Church. And I just want to personally thank you for listening to our podcast. And I also want to invite you wherever you are around the country or in the Tampa Bay area to join our digital online campus at centerpointfl.org. And here's what you need to know. Our vision is to create an alternative to church as usual for all people. And all that means is, regardless of whether you've been a longtime follower of Jesus, you're new to faith, you're investigating faith, or you don't even know what you believe, our goal is for you to feel like you belong, even if you never believe. And so thank you again for listening, and I hope today's message encourages you and helps you. How we doing, guys? Um... Real quick, number one, if you're the Bucks fan, if you're a Bucks fan, you already know this. We're playing in Germany today, 9:30 Eastern time. So if you are here, um, you get extra credit in heaven, I'm pretty sure. And number two, I'm going to pretend that you are looking at the app notes of the message and not watching the game for the next little bit. If you try to tell me the score, I swear to you, like you're disinvited to center point for the rest of time. So I got to preach. I don't know anything. So let's keep it that way. Uh, two things. December such a huge month. I know we've mentioned this, but um, December the 4th, our celebration Sunday is something new, but we're going to celebrate all that God's done. And one of those things is all the money that you guys gave toward for the city and all the ways that's going to help. So don't miss that Sunday. It's actually a great Sunday to invite. It's going to be awesome. And then um, December 18th, I think Angela mentioned this, but it's kind of a late edition, but our Christmas concert with you may know him from The Voice, um, Capitol Recording Artist, Jeremy Rosado. That's December 18th right here. And the super cool thing is our own uh, staff member, Aaron David, is opening for Jeremy that night right here, which is pretty cool. So that's another, it's outside of Sunday morning. It's actually a really cool invite. It's going to be a great night. Um, so take advantage of those two opportunities. December's jam-packed. But here's the thing I'm going to tell you. Um, those tickets for the Christmas concert are going to go super, super fast. So you want to grab those on the app. If you don't have the Centerpoint app, go get that. Or um, go out to the info center today. They can give you more info or hook you up. But I just can't stress enough, get those tickets really, really fast. So um, with that, we're in part three of this series, God of Underdogs, God of the Underdogs. My wife is kind of team teaching this with me, and she's going to be back next week. Um, to land the plane on this series. But here's what we're talking about. And by the title, it's no surprise. Like all of us, I don't care how much you've, you know, feel like you've achieved, or maybe you're at a place right now, you feel really good about where you're at. Um, you know, there's been some successes, but regardless, all of us have had those moments where we feel inadequate, we feel inferior, we feel like we don't have what it takes, we're not enough, we don't measure up, because it's just a human thing. And then here's why we love the story of the underdogs. This is why my favorite movies are movies that center around this plot. Because at the end of the day, the underdog overcomes, right? The underdog beats all of the odds. The underdog wins out. And we love those stories because we feel that. Like, we relate to that. But here's what I want to talk about for a few minutes. Like, what do you do when just life doesn't work out? Like, what do you do when it's not going to go as planned? Either maybe because of decisions that you've made, and we all have some of those, or decisions that other people made that are going to impact you. But what do you do when your life just trumps your plans? Because there are certain times, and this is where I wanted to make sure I was really real in the series, because you guys are listening to, hey, God has an incredible plan and will and destiny for your life, and here's who you are, and you need to remember it, and there is no dream that's too far gone for God to resurrect and for God to lead you toward it, and all of those things are true. But like, there's just moments, though, in life, and this is just reality, where we recognize that there's a dream that is not going to happen. There's a dream that not only won't come true, it can't come true. And you recognize that what you wanted for marriage isn't going to be your experience and your reality. There's a relationship that's not going to be reconciled. 
There's a daughter that's not going to get walked down the aisle. There's a high chair that's going to stay empty. There's a school that you're not going to get into and you've prayed and you've pleaded and you've hoped and it's not going to happen. There's a business that's not where you wanted it to be. You're in a season of your life right now at like 54 and it's not what you expected or you're at 24 and you've already had some dreams that you've come to a dead end on and you're just at a place where there are some dreams that are not going to happen. And isn't this true sometimes, like especially depending on your faith background, is you can get to that crossroads and it almost feels like God's let you down. In fact, in some cases, it feels like God almost owes you or God promised you and now God is not coming through. And then the other really difficult dynamic is you look around at other people and whether this is reality or not, I don't know, but it just feels like it. Their dreams are coming true. Like their prayers are getting answered. They're beating the odds. They're overcoming. And here you are and you feel like you've been faithful and it's not happening for you. So this is the question I want to answer. And this is just a really real question is where a lot of us are at. What do you do when your dream isn't going to come true? What do you do when your dream dies? With all of the underdog stories we're looking at in this series, what happens in that area where you don't overcome and you don't beat the odds? And it's not in the game plan for this next season of your life. Like, like how do you handle that? This is actually the story of David's life in the Old Testament. And many of you, even if you didn't grow up in the church, you know about parts of his life. But this guy is like the ultimate example of the underdog where he's a nobody in his family. He's the youngest son. His prophet comes like, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And they're like, are you serious, David? And David, again, against all odds, eventually defeats Goliath. Like everybody knows that story. So he has these epic moments of everything is against him. And yet somehow he overcomes. God does something extraordinary in his life. And then after he's anointed, he goes to to the kingdom where Saul is still the king and Saul is so incredibly jealous that he runs David out and basically David lives for a while as a fugitive. And during that season, you can read it on your own, there's some dreams that die for David. And some of those dreams, it wasn't because of his choices, it was because of other people's choices. And what you find out, and this is really important to where we're going in a second, that during that season, David is so disheartened and so discouraged that he begins to make decisions that compound his problem and actually lead to more regret. And then later on, after running as a fugitive, he ends up becoming the king of Israel and he makes some bad decisions of his own that kill some more dreams. And yet David, as we're going to see in a few minutes, had learned some lessons by that time. So by around his 50s, David is the king of Israel. He's gone through all of these incredible moments where one moment he's the underdog, overcomes. The next moment he's in this place that could only be attributed to God's favor on his life. And then somebody blows it or he blows it and he ends up back in a place where all the odds are against him again. But finally he's in his 50s, which during that time is a pretty old dude. And the famous story of him sending his men out to war, he stays at home and he spots this girl Bathsheba bathing. And there was a lot of issues with kings during that time. We talked about it in week one. But the biggest issue was you couldn't tell the king no. So the king's like, go get her for me. They bring Bathsheba in. And again, just so you know, there's going to be a lot of narrative that I'm going to walk through because I want to do this story justice. Uh, if you've got your kids in here, there may be a few trigger warnings because I want to tell this thing like unvarnished. But I, I want to make sure that you get the impact of kind of the 40-year history I want to narrate for a few minutes. But he sees Bathsheba. He says, go get her, bring her into me. And for the next probably several nights, they sleep together. Well, then the pregnancy test turns up double lines. And David realizes 
that he's got a big, big problem. And so he goes into action to go send for Uriah, which is Bathsheba's husband, brings him back to the kingdom. He's like, hey, you've worked really hard. You've done incredible, you know, helping lead my military forces. Why don't you go in and spend some time with your wife? And so Uriah is so honorable that he's like, my men are out to war. I'm not going to come back, stay in my home and sleep with my wife. And so David tries for several nights. None of it works. And then finally, he's like, well, plan B, I'm going to get Uriah drunk. And so he gets Uriah drunk and he's like, hey, why don't you, one more, why don't you go you know, spend some time with your wife? And Uriah, again, is so honorable. He's like, my men are out to war. I'm not going to come back to the kingdom, enjoy the comforts of home and be with my wife. And by the way, if you were to stop the story right there, and like have a conversation with God, you'd be like, hey God, your promise for you know, the next king of Israel who's gonna ultimately through his line birth the Messiah, you picked the wrong guy. You should have picked Uriah. He's much more honorable than David. So that doesn't work. He still doesn't sleep with the wife. So David's like plan C. And so he basically drafts a death warrant. Uriah has no idea, puts it together, gives it to Uriah. He's like, hey, take this out to my commander Joab. So Uriah goes back into the battle, gives it to the commander Joab. And like everybody else, the downside of having a king is you can't tell the king no. Joab isn't able to tell the king no. And so he gets the letter and it's basically this death warrant to send his men out into this battle, withdraw the flanks, leave Uriah exposed, and inevitably Uriah is going to die. And that's exactly what Joab does. And Uriah dies in the battlefield And word gets back to Bathsheba, and she is heartbroken over the whole thing. And so immediately David thinks, I dodged a bullet. Things are good. He takes in Bathsheba. So there's kind of this perception of magnanimously, David's going to raise this child of the heartbroken widow. The only problem is the walls talk. And you can't keep a secret. And everybody's going to find out. And eventually, if you know the story, Nathan, who's a prophet, comes to David and he tells a story that's fictitious, but it's about David. And he gets to the end. He's like, David, by the way, the story I just told you, it's you. I'm talking about you. And David realizes what he's done. It hits him. And all of a sudden, he's heartbroken. And he recognizes that things are never really going to be the same again. And then there's just, just a side note to this real quick that's so important in David's story because the consequences of his actions are not going to catch up for quite a long time. And this is just the reality for all of us, that every off-the-rails decision, every bad decision, every dysfunctional, I'm going to do it anyway, every sin comes prepackaged with the consequence. And the problem is the, the decision and the payoff, a lot of times there's a massive gap And it is not that God's trying to pay you back or get you back. If you know the gospel or the good news, that already happened to Jesus at the cross. But this is just life, right? This is cause and effect. This is sow and reap. And so David makes some decisions and little does he know, those decisions cannot be confined to the moment. He cannot keep them secret. And ultimately his decisions are leading to a future destination. And so here's what Nathan says to him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 11. This is what the Lord says. Stay with me. I promise it's going somewhere. Your own household, um, I'm going to bring calamity on it. And verse 12, what you did in secret, I'm going to do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Because, David, you're the king. And the king's accountable. In fact, the king has a different standard and he's accountable to the entire kingdom. And so then David said to, the Nathan, uh, said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And one of the things about David, man, with all of his off-the-rails behavior, he understood he was the king, you know, lowercase k, 
but he understood that he was in relationship with capital D King. And so David recognizes, I've sinned against the Lord, the King of all creation. And Nathan replied, the Lord's taken away your sin and you're not gonna die. But there's going to be consequences for what you did to Uriah. Because David made a decision with a prepackaged destination, a prepackaged ultimately consequence. And so a year goes by, nothing happens. Five years go by, nothing happens. A decade goes by, nothing happens. And finally, David's consequences catch up with him. And unlike other seasons in his life, David is gonna recognize, I'm not gonna be able to overcome this. I'm not gonna beat the odds. I'm not gonna be different. And so in this moment, about 10 years later, David recognizes that there are some dreams that are not gonna come true. There's some dreams that are not gonna be fulfilled. That part of the story um, picks up with um, his oldest son, who is Amnon. His oldest son was next in line, obviously, to be the next king of Israel. And this is where it turns, unbelievably, like Jerry Springer. Um, is that still on or whatever? Like, you know what I'm talking about, though? Um, it, it just gets dysfunctional and crazy and then crazier. So Amnon is in love with his half-sister Tamar. So this is revealing all you need to know about the family dysfunction in the David household. And he tries everything he can to, to kind of start something with her. She doesn't even know he existed. It's a big kingdom. He's obsessed with her. So he decides he's going to pretend to be sick. And then he asks his attendants to bring in his half-sister Tamar to basically nurse him back to health. And when she gets there, so crazy, he tries to convince her to sleep with him. And here's where it's recorded in 2 Samuel 13, 12. No, my, for emphasis, brother, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Do not do this wicked thing. And this is when it gets so heartbreaking. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. And then as if that wasn't gut-wrenching enough, it just gets worse. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. And in fact, he hated her more than he loved her. And Amnon said to her after this whole thing, get up and get out. And I don't have time to draw the, the link, but like father, like son. David's egregious abuse of power is now being repeated multi-generationally. And so she, he sends her out and Tamar understands, especially in this culture where women are commodities, that her life will never be the same again. And here's the crazy thing about it. Again, nobody can keep a secret in the palace. Nothing is isolated. The walls talk, people are gonna find out and eventually the word gets all the way to David of what's happened between his, his kids and David becomes furious. I mean, as you can imagine, he's so angry and yet, this is so crazy to me, David does nothing about it. Partly, I think, because at this point in David's life, David has lost all moral authority and he thinks, who am I to tell anybody else about their life? And David has no idea what to do, no idea how to move forward. He's been in situations before with all the odds against him, but he's in kind of, his back is to the corner and he doesn't know what the next move is. Well, then that's when um, Absalom comes onto the scene. And Absalom is the third son of David, probably the second son died, and he's the full sister of Tamar. They've got the same parents. And so Absalom decides, I'm gonna bring in Tamar, who was, 
you know, had this incredibly horrific act done to her by my half-brother, and, and basically I'm going to take care of her. So a year goes by, Absalom takes care of her. Two years go by, just like David, he does nothing. And then all of a sudden, when everybody's kind of complacent, feel like everything's swept under the rug, it's no big deal, everybody's moved on. It's just one of those family secrets of the dysfunctional kingdom. Absalom decides he's going to get back. And so he throws this massive party the drinks are flowing, it's open bar, everybody's having an amazing time, and Absalom gets everybody drunk, including his brother, half-brother, Amnon. And as soon as Amnon gets drunk, Absalom sends in his guys and kills him. And immediately, all of his brothers flee. And Absalom takes off, because he knows he can't stay there, and he heads north to what's modern-day Syria. And eventually, David finds out that his oldest son has been killed by what we're going to find out is his favorite son. And again, David, after hearing the news, is angry, but he does absolutely nothing about any of it. David, who defeated Goliath. David, who's overcome all the odds. David, who's won again and again and again and again. Well, eventually three years go by, and David finally invites Absalom, who's been in hiding, back into the kingdom, and Absalom comes back. But there is a ton of tension, as you can only imagine, and dysfunction. So David never talks to him. Absalom lives in a different part of the kingdom. He's basically on house arrest. And Absalom, as time goes by, is getting angrier and angrier and angrier and angrier. So finally he decides, I got to do something to get David's attention. So he goes to Joab, who's the commander of the army, and he burns down Joab's farm. And Joab's like, hey, dude, what is the deal? And he's like, I had to get somebody's attention. And so I know that, that my father will listen to you, so I burnt down your farm. Sorry about that. And now I need you to send a message to my father because he's ignoring me in his kingdom. And like, I, I could not be more angry. And so Joab knows he's got to send somebody indirectly. So he does. He sends a woman to David to talk to David. And just like Nathan, she tells the story. And at the end, she's basically like, David, the person I'm talking about is you. You've got to do something. You've got to get things right. And so he invites Absalom back into his kingdom and into his chambers. And there's this powerful moment where you think, well, maybe it's all going to work out. And David places his hands on Absalom and basically bestows his blessing. And it's a sign of reconciliation and that the relationship is restored. And that maybe David somehow with all of these horrific actions is going to overcome and things are going to get back to normal. And his life is going to end with kind of this epic victory that's going to tie a bow on all of it. And yet the relationship wasn't restored. David never calls for him again. And Absalom becomes angrier and angrier and angrier. And in fact, he leaves David's chambers and shortly after decides that he's going to do everything he can to connive and scheme to overthrow his dad, King David, and to take the kingdom and the empire. And so what he does for the next four years is Absalom stands outside the city gates and anybody who had a case that needed tried, which was like a big part of what the king did, they would hear cases and they would rule. Absalom decides, hey, everybody sees me as speaking for the king. I'm the king's son. They don't know all the behind the scenes dysfunction. So he stands out there and he tries these cases day after day after day before they get to David and he wins the hearts of the people. And he wins influence within the kingdom and he basically steals the hearts of the people in the kingdom as a way to somehow work his way into the throne. And after four years, here's what 2 Samuel 15, 10 says. The Absalom, you guys still with me? Okay, I have one person. Thanks, Aaron. Sent secret messengers throughout the tribes of Israel to say, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpets, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. And when you read that, you're like, are people gonna buy that? And the answer is yes. 
Because they had no news. So basically anything they would hear, they would believe. And they don't know the backstory. So as soon as they hear this, they think, well, this is amazing. This is succession. David's son is going to be king. We should rejoice. And so they hear the word of this and everybody rejoices. And yet there's David. 16 years after Bathsheba. After moving against and overcoming the odds again and again and again and again. Here he finally is and his world has been turned upside down and his oldest son has been murdered by his you know, younger son and now he's inciting a civil war and David has no options. David has no good moves. So verse 13, a messenger came and told David, the hearts of the people of Israel are with Absalom, your son. And David said to all of his officials who are with him in Jerusalem, come, we got to flee. We've got to get out of here because none of us are going to escape from Absalom. And again, here David is in his 20s. He was on the run. He was a fugitive. And here he is some 20, almost 30 years later, and he's a fugitive again. And all of the odds are against him. And he has no idea where he's going to go or how it's going to end. We must leave immediately and we've got to go quickly or they will overtake us and bring ruin on us and put the city to the sword. And so David, of David and Goliath, a king who had so much influence, songs were written about him. He was beloved for decades, has no other option but to leave the kingdom, leave the empire. All of the odds are against him. Everything is stacked against him where he doesn't know what to do. And yet this time, he's not 22 anymore like he was the first time. He's 61 years old. And he is not where he wanted to be in life. And his dreams, at least some of these dreams, are not going to come true for him. This will not be David and Goliath part two. This will not be overcoming everything stacked against him part two. It's not gonna happen. And I just want to pause right there because that, that's exactly where some of us are at. And maybe the difference of your story, though, is like David earlier in his life, you didn't even choose this. But you are heartbroken. You are disillusioned. You are frustrated. You are angry. And in some cases, maybe it's our decisions, but we've got a whole lot of people who have held broken dreams or dreams that feel like they're dying and it, it was no fault of your own and you look at it to go, man, I did everything that I could do. I stayed when they left. I was patient when they didn't hang around. I was faithful when it felt like everybody else around me, me was, was faithless. I raised them right. I told the truth anyway. I kept going anyway. And now I'm faced with this thing where it's not gonna work out for me. I'm not gonna be able to pray my way into that dream. It, it's not gonna happen. And here's the thing, and just real quick, that was so important for David, that's so important for us. When you get into that place where you recognize that thing that you even thought maybe God owed you, God promised you, it's happening for them, why isn't it gonna happen for me? It is so easy to become so disillusioned and heartbroken that you begin to reach for things that only create more regret. In fact, earlier in, in this scenario with David where he had another dream die in his 20s, David was so disillusioned that he began to make bad decision after bad decision. And he's not even the one that killed the dream. It was somebody else. But he was so heartbroken. He made bad decision after bad decision that only created more regret for him later in life. And now David is at the place at 61 years old where he's learned something from that. 
And he determines, despite his flaws, despite the ways that he's failed, he's not going to repeat the same mistakes again. Because when all of us are in a place where we do not feel good, we want to feel better. And it's in those seasons of our life that we are most susceptible to reach for things and to go after self-soothing mechanism that actually lead us to a place further from where we want to ultimately be. And so David recognizes that and he's learned some things from his 20s. And so in 2 Samuel 15, 23, it says, the whole countryside wept when they finally recognized what was happening. And all the people passed by, the king crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the wilderness because again, David's just like, we gotta go. We don't know where we're going. In verse 24, Zadok was there too and all the Levites or the priests who were there with him were carrying, this is so important, the ark of the covenant of God. And that means nothing to us this was devastating for the nation of Israel because in their minds, and there was truth to it, the ark of God was representative of the presence of God. And so as they watched David leave the city with the ark of the covenant, in their minds, it was literally the presence of God leaving the city. And this is so, so powerful with David and all of his flaws. He recognizes in this moment, I'm not gonna manipulate this. I'm not going to use this against the people. I'm not going to allow, because all they see is the presence of God leaving their city. And so verse 25, it says, the king said to Zadok, and this was such a courageous decision, take the ark of God back to the city. And everybody who's with David is thinking, David, come on, man, you, you've done this before. You've beat the odds before. You're David and Goliath, go get your sword. Like we, we can do this. And yet you're sending the Ark of the Covenant back into the city, which to them was representative of the fact that David had given up. David is sending God's presence and God's power back into the city. But, but listen to how David, listen to his explanation. Listen to what David does in this moment. When he says this into verse 25, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, I'm not gonna manipulate this. I don't know how it's gonna work out. I know I've contributed to a lot of this, but if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back. He'll let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says to me, I'm not pleased with you, this is so powerful. And David would not have responded this way at 27. Then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. And I cannot overestimate this enough. David, ultimate underdog. He's overcome the odds before, but now he's in a situation where it just doesn't look like it's gonna happen. And David's entire world seems like it's lost, but David does not lose his confidence in God. With all of his flaws, all of his dysfunction, all of the things that he's done that are on his bio or on his rap sheet, David gets to the place where he's in a season where God's not answering his prayers. It's not working out the way that he wanted. Goliath or his metaphorical Goliath is not coming down with a slingshot. And in that moment, it felt like God had abandoned him. And yet David, this is what I don't want you to miss. David chose not to abandon God when it felt like God had abandoned him. And instead, he decides that I'm going to remain confident in God even when I don't understand this and even when I am heartbroken around the outcome. Eventually, just stay with me for a second, Absalom comes back to take his place on the throne now that David's gone. The only problem is in that culture, if you wanted to be the undisputed king, you had to kill the king. And so Absalom's guys are like, listen, you, you've got to go after David. And specifically, he had an advisor by the name of Ahithophel who was an advisor to David, but now he switched sides because he was an opportunist. He's like, well, it looks like Absalom's going to be king, so I'm going to get in on that. 
And so Absalom asks Ahithophel, who once was a trusted advisor of David, what do I need to do? And Ahithophel says, listen, you need to pursue David. Don't give him time to organize because this dude is a masterful technician. Go after him, kill him. And if you do, all of his men are going to follow you. And so Absalom's like, that's a good idea. Well, David hears about it and he's got his, his own advisor who had stayed with him by the name of Hushi. And so he says to him, listen, here's what I want you to do. Ahithophel's still back there with Absalom. I want you to go back there, pretend that you're switching sides as well and give them really bad advice. Like try to sabotage the whole thing. And so that's what he does. He goes back there, he gets in, Absalom thinks he can be trusted. And so he begins to give Absalom some advice about what he needs to do. And so Absalom asked him, and here was his reply in 2 Samuel 17, 7. Hushi replied to Absalom, the advice that Hithophel has given you is not good. You know your father and his men, they're fighters. They're fierce as a wild bear robbed of her cubs, which means nothing to the, us, but that was, they got that reference. Besides your father is an experienced fighter. He's not gonna spend the night with his troops. And even now he's hidden in the cave or some other place and you're not gonna find him. And so basically, Hushi, who's trying to sabotage the whole thing, is like, listen, listen, let me give you some good advice. You need to wait. You need to kind of gather your men. And then after you've waited for a while, you need to go after David. And Absalom's like, that's great advice. And Ahithophel's like, that's terrible advice. And Ahithophel is so devastated, he goes and kills himself. Because he just assumes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna die in battle anyway because there's no way that you are gonna match organizational skills and strategy with David. And so David now has extra time. He begins to recognize he needs to defend himself. He divides his armies into thirds. And again, you're thinking at this point, the music is swelling and you're like, this is when David's gonna get it back. This is when it's all gonna end and this is gonna be the David and Goliath like, David divides them into thirds and he gives this instructions. When you catch up, 2 Samuel 18, 5, when you catch up, be gentle with the young man Absalom, my son, for my sake. And all of the troops heard the king concerning these orders about Absalom and each of his commanders because David was not gonna go into battle with them. In verse six, David's army marched out to the city to fight Israel. And the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim, which, real important, meant, by the way, the only thing I could think of would like in the... Actually, it'll, I'll get to that in a second. Um, when they get to the forest, this is where everything changes because numbers mean nothing. And the fact that David's men are outnumbered, uh -uh. it's all about strategy. It's all about organization. And David is gonna out-strategize Absalom every day, all day long. And so they, Israel's troops are routed by David's men. The casualties that day were great. 20,000 men, the battle spread out over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed them up, which makes me think of Lord of the Rings. Nobody got that reference in the 9 a.m., but swallowed them up more men that day than the sword. And really, unlike Lord of the Rings, all of these low-hanging trees, which they were not used to doing battle in those conditions, just took a bunch of guys out. And they had thousands, 20,000 men, 20,000 fighters died that day. And rather than David, like he had done so many times in his life, overcoming odds, somehow rectifying this, moving this thing back into a great place, instead, he gets word that Absalom, rather than being taken a prisoner of war, was taken by Joab's men and he was killed. In fact, when Absalom's men find out about it, they just leave, they just go home. David gets word, he's heartbroken. In fact, he's so heartbroken and mourns to such a degree that Joab has to come to him to go, listen, you're losing all of your men because they think that you'd rather have them dead than Absalom, and yet they have secured for you the kingdom. You gotta knock it off. 
David reluctantly comes back into the kingdom at about 61 years old, but he comes back into the kingdom recognizing he would not salvage anything. His dreams for his future were not gonna come true. And nine years later, he was gonna die and his world would never be the same again. And here's why I tell you that whole depressing story. Here's what I love about this, and this gives so much credence and authenticity to the scriptures. David's biographers do nothing to hide all of his flaws and all of his failures. Because David's life, with hopefully some, some very you know, strategic differences with ours, but so much of his life is our life. It's not linear, that it's, hey, I have a dream and some of those dreams came true and David did defeat the odds. David did overcome. David did see God do extraordinary things. And then David had dreams die because of his own decisions. David had dreams die because of other people's decisions. And David gets to a place like so many of us with all of that kind of mixed bag in terms of our story. And he had every reason to abandon God when it felt like God had abandoned him. But here's what I love about his story that I relate to. With all of David's flaws, and he had a ton. With all of David's dysfunction, he had a ton. With all of David's kind of reaching for, I'm gonna make this happen, I'm gonna take my destiny into my hands, and it ends really, really badly. With all of those failures and flaws, David never lost confidence in God. When decisions were made around him and even when he compounded some of those decisions, he was able to move through that season and he, and he never abandoned God even when it seemed like God was doing nothing on his behalf. And when he got to a season of his life where even though he had chosen some things that had led him to a bad place, even in that season where he's still hoping that God's gonna come through, God's gonna change the narrative, God's gonna lead him into a place that he had seen God do so many times in his life and God doesn't do it. God doesn't seem to answer his prayer. God doesn't seem to, to care about his dream any longer. And yet David, just like those earlier seasons, is continuing to move forward and be confident in God even when he does not see God at work. And this is where it's so important to us. And if you missed all the rest of it, or I bored you, or you got lost in the narrative, just come back and I'm gonna land this plane. The foundation of our faith, if you're a follower of Jesus, the foundation of our faith, if you are a follower of Jesus, is not answered prayers or happily ever after endings. And it is so easy in a series like that of like, this is who I am in Christ, lavishly loved, purpose intended, son, daughter of the king of the universe, that God has a will, God has a destiny for my life, that God, because he's a resurrected king, can take any dream and resurrect it and move it to a place where he's gonna fulfill it. He's gonna do it through his power. He's gonna defeat all of the odds. And all of those things are true. But the reality about a sin infested world is there's gonna be prayers and there's gonna be dreams and there's gonna be circumstances that are not going to turn out the way that we want. And if our basis for confidence in God is answered prayers, happily ever after endings and fulfilled dreams, we will always be disappointed in God around promises that God never made. And in fact, David would be the first to say that when you wrap your faith around fulfilled dreams and answered prayers and your ability to be able to interpret what God is doing in your life, you will be disappointed and it is always a mistake because dreams that do not come true and prayers that do not get answered, listen to me, say nothing about the presence, goodness, 
and faithfulness of God. And in fact, David would say, when it felt like it was all out of control and God was not with me and God was not for me, do not buy into that lie because God was with me every step of the way. And David would be the quickest to remind us, when you feel like based on your circumstances, when you feel like based on your unfulfilled dreams, when you feel like based on the fact that you're in a season of life and this is not what you had for your 10-year plan, when you feel like because of the decisions that they made and you're carrying so much low-grade anger because you feel like they've sabotaged your future, when you are in that place and you are tempted to believe that God is absent, that God is apathetic, that maybe God is angry, that maybe God is forgotten, David would be the first to say, you are wrong about God. And your circumstances and your dream and the fact that you didn't overcome the odds and you didn't somehow win it in the end is not an indicator of God's love, God's activity, God's power, God's presence. Your circumstances say nothing about who God is about who you are and what God is doing in your life. And we have said this so many times, probably get tired of it, but it's just the reality. In those depths where you are most disillusioned and discouraged may be the epicenter of God doing his greatest work for his glory and for your good. And it may not wrap at the end of the show and it may not happen in this season and you may not even see it this side of eternity, but God is with you. God is for you. God is working, not because we have a Bible verse, but because Jesus has condescended into human flesh and come on, unlike any other religion and any other wannabe savior, went to the cross to die for us and enter our pain and then did something in history by anchoring a resurrection that says, you may not see that dream come back to life right now. You may not see it resurrected in the moment, but everything you're doing right now is counting for eternity. And even if your own bad decisions have led you to a place that you don't want to be, you have a God that loves loves you, is for you, and with you, because it's not on the basis of your performance. It's on the basis of his perfection. And so you have every reason to not abandon God when it feels like God has abandoned you, because history tells us he is with us. He is for us. He is working through us. Do not lose confidence. God's character was never based on your fulfilled dreams. God's faithfulness was never tethered to your answered prayers. God's activity was never linked to your ability to interpret the mind of the creator, God of the universe. And so he says to you, trust me. And because we serve a God that entered into flesh, that understood and felt and was tempted and hurt, he understands the pain of broken dreams and betrayal and it's not gonna work out the way you wanted. And this is not what you would have chosen. And maybe the best thing that we could do is mirror David's words when he wrote this in the midst of a circumstance that we can't by ourselves change. And it's not what we want to say, if I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back. He'll do it. He'll fulfill it. But let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Basically, to quote what would be said by Jesus 900 and some years later, God, not my will, but your will be done. That even when it feels like I've lost my world, I have 
not lost my confidence in God. I love, and I'm, just, I'm gonna end with this. I love this, this verse that David pens in Psalms. And Psalms is actually the journal entries of Jesus' most intimate feelings and struggles through all of David's intimate struggles and feelings through all of these experiences. And so in Psalms, he actually journals and writes what he was feeling and experiencing in the midst of what I just talked about. And here's what he said in Psalm 25, one. This is David's journal entry as he's experiencing all of this real time. He says this, in the midst of family situations, that's not what I want. In the midst of a kingdom that's not gonna end the way I wanted it to. In the midst of, of memories from the past of triumph that are not leading into my present. In the midst of not understanding, not being able to connect all the dots. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Not in my fulfilled dreams, not in happily ever after, not in my answered prayers, not in the fulfillment of my vision for my future. In you, Lord, I put my trust. And then David pens this in verse five. My hope is in you all the day long. And the reason that I can preach that with so much confidence, two things, because I, I, I do believe that God's word is living and it is powerful. But the other reason I can preach that with confidence is because I've grown up in all of this and I've watched person after person after person after person deal with tragedy and broken dreams and unfulfilled in their mind promises. And yet somehow I've watched them deal with broken dreams and in the midst of broken, devastating, it's not gonna work out for me. They never lost their confidence in God. Because they would say, I never tethered my confidence in God to my fulfilled dreams or my answered prayers. And so for some of us, we go, well, well, well why believe? <laughs> because there's a God and he loves you. And he did everything in history so that you could know this is not some ethereal, just have faith and faith, just believe. No, no, no. A man came in human flesh, lived the life you couldn't live, died the death you should have died, walked out of a grave alive and anchored it into history with overwhelming evidence. And so he says to you, I want you to follow me. Because the whole story that we derive good news from looked like the worst day in all of humanity and ended up being the greatest day in all of humanity because it was in that moment I was working good for all of the world across every generation. I don't know how it's gonna end, but Jesus would say to you, I want you to follow me. I want you to trust me. And I want you to take confidence in the fact I have overcome the grave. I do love you. Nothing is ever going to change that even if you face plant to the end of your life because it was based on me and what I've done for you. You are are my son and daughter. You are lavishly loved. You are purpose intended. You do have a destiny. And even if you don't realize it in this moment, I'm doing something for all of eternity. I want you to trust me and you don't need to understand me. You don't have to know how it ends. You don't have to hear me for a decade. You don't even need an answered prayer. You just need to know I've done something. I'm for you. And like all of the Old Testament saints who shut the mouths of lions, but were also burned at the stake. All all of the disciples in the New Testament who had more faith than we're ever gonna have and it didn't end well for them. And yet they were able to maintain their confidence in God anyway. And so Jesus says to you, the posture of your heart, which is so difficult, so hard, but it's the essence of following Jesus is just to surrender. Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. And I don't have to like it or understand it. 
But I want to come to the place of surrender that even when it doesn't work out and I don't see you and I'm not going to beat the odds and overcome, when it feels like you've abandoned me, I'm not going to abandon you. And when it feels like my world is lost, I'm not going to lose my confidence in you. So if we could just end by declaring that, would you just, wherever you're at, would you stand with me? I want to invite you into this if you're listening to the unfiltered radio, you're watching, you're podcasting somewhere. And I just want to be, I want this prayer, this journal entry that David penned to be kind of our final prayer. And this, my hope is that you would take this with you. Because what starts as intellectual can somehow by the power of the spirit of God move from your head to your heart to transform and change everything. And so I don't know what you're struggling with right now, obviously. I don't know what the relationship looks like. I don't know what your kids are struggling with. I don't know what dream has died. I don't know what place that you've maybe just recently gotten to where finally there's this realization that, that the hope that you had for how it was gonna work out is just not gonna turn out the way you wanted. But this is our prayer. And I want you to just say it after me if you would. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Let me lead that one more time. In you, Lord my God, I put my trust. My hope is in you all day long. Just pray with me, Jesus. I thank you for what you're doing in this moment. And like so many other messages, I get that this hits a thousand different directions and I don't know how you do this but there can be moments that we enter into and nothing about our circumstances change. Nothing about what we hope for changes. Moments where you are still not resurrecting any of those dead dreams that we're hanging onto. And yet somehow though the circumstances do not change, we do. And you transform our heart and lead us to a place that all of us tend to go kicking and screaming, but to finally open the palms of our hands and say, God, not my will, but your will be done. So God, wherever that leads us, I pray that we would not get frightened to pray that prayer because we don't mean it. I just pray that we would start somewhere to come to you in the midst of whatever it is that we're grappling with, whatever it is that's died, whatever it is that's not gonna come true for us. And that even if we don't mean it, this would begin to be our declaration until it moves to the place to change our posture, to change our thinking, to give us the mind of Christ and to see as you see and to lead us to the place that Jesus was led in those moments where he wasn't sure if the cross was the best option. God, not my will, but your will be done. I will not abandon you even when it feels like you've abandoned me. And my hope is in you, not my fulfilled dreams and answered prayers or happily ever after endings. My hope is in you all day long. And so God, I pray that you would do that work. You're capable and so I'm leaving it in your hands. In Jesus' incredible name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this message or have been impacted by Centerpoint Church in any way, would you consider helping us out in one of two ways? 
first, if you would just spread the word, share this message with your friends, family, maybe you could go rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast catcher, but this helps us so much more than you know. And secondly, this ministry is supported by people like you through their financial generosity. And so if you've been impacted by any of these messages, would you consider giving to support the mission and vision of Centerpoint to see people reach with the radical grace of Jesus? You can give today on our website at centerpointfl.org. And again, that's centerpointfl.org.